Sam, I can see you just wincing in your <laughs> hair, but I hey, well, love Fury Road. Samir, what do you think deserve best picture? Where do you land on this Mad Max Fury Road? Yes. I'm going to go ahead here and jump on the shit on Sam Badwagon. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm with easy, Corey and Dane. Uh, it's a rite of passage for any mediocre film boy to talk about how much they hate the Oscars, and yet talk about the Oscars in 90% of their conversations about films. Today is no different. The mediocre film boys today will discuss their 10 favorite Oscar Best Picture winners of the past decade, as well as who should have been the rightful winner for each year. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast whose name is honestly too long for me to even remember half the time, but I know it has something to do with being a bunch of mediocre white film boys uh, featuring Samir. <laughs> I am Corey Stillman. I am back after a hiatus. I know everybody missed me. I didn't get to talk about my favorite Pixar movies, uh, but today we're going to talk about the Oscars instead. Uh, talking more specifically about the Oscars this year and then kind of in a, re- a retrospective. Uh, the Oscars this year is a tricky topic because it may or may not even happen. There's a lot of uh, a lot that is in flux as it relates to the ceremony, but that is because literally every movie ever this year is seems to be getting delayed into oblivion, at least well in the 2021, if not 2022, and well beyond. Uh, so there really isn't much uh, coming our way in terms of movies this year. It'll be interesting to see how the Oscars handle that. They do have a surprising number of movies already that have come out this year that could consider and i'd be curious to hear your guys thoughts on movies you've seen this year we've already talked about in our first episode what we think are some of the the best movies but that's not necessarily the same question as uh what might be oscar worthy um i thought that i had and i kind of this is how i want to kind of start the conversation uh about movies this year is you know this could be an opportunity for the oscars for the first time ever to really sort of you know there's been this controversy every year about do the are the oscars out of touch with what's popular. You know, they they almost added that popular movie category one year and they kind of uh, got rid of it right away because they realized it was kind of a lame attempt to sort of recognize uh, more mainstream films. But is this an opportunity maybe for the Oscars in a year that has really only given us like a few blockbusters and then um, just a kind of a few random other, other movies that have gotten decent reception? Is this an opportunity for the Oscars to maybe sort of be more in touch with mainstream audiences and recognize uh, a broader range of films. Could a movie like Sonic the Hedgehog, which you know Dane loves, be an, an, an Oscar film this year? Because it is part of a very small pool of films. Oscars is re- willing to swallow their pride and do that, I guess. Oh, also, hi, everyone. I'm Sam Ericalio, not hosting the episode today. Uh, instead, I'll just be a, a talking head with hot takes that no one enjoys, like Samir does. Um, if the Oscars are willing to swallow their pride, um, it's possible. I just don't think there's been enough movies released, period. If unless you unless you want Trolls World Tour in as a nominee for an animated like film, I think you have to just move it back. Like you have to maybe do 
throughout this entire pandemic, like an Oscars of the pandemic movies released. I I just don't think there's there's going to be nearly enough um, films this year for any of the quality, like of any of the categories. Sorry, um, that's just my opinion on that. I think it's definitely they could definitely use the time to oh and same thing i'm dane holtz uh yeah i like sonic and yeah so definitely unanimous thing yeah well here's the thing too is it's going to be happening in february march who knows covid wise where we're going to even be at so i mean there is the option of push pushing it back it's going to be like a the weird emmy situation where it's just the host talking uh to an empty audience and i mean i think definitely in order to get viewers this this upcoming oscars they're gonna have to change something to make it a bit more popular and um i guess enthusiastic towards more of a mainstream audience and yeah i mean there definitely hasn't been much that has come out this year but i do think that they could still put on a show if they wanted to yeah on i guess i have to side with sam on this in the sense that and and dane um in the sense that um i just can't see there being a productive and really good oscar ceremony this year um in terms of the movies that have come out i think their options are either have a subpar 2020 ceremony as is like a very subpar one in terms of the other ceremonies um or or they just kind of combine all the movies that have released in this year and the next year and have a larger one which i think would be an interesting idea because um it would be marketable for them because at the end of the day, the Academy is a self-sustaining organization and they exist in their own interest. Um, so they have rules, they make up rules and stuff, and they kind of work to preserve themselves. So I think that they would want to do something that would like, oh, wow, okay, the first time in history we're doing this trendy little thing or whatever. So I think that it would be in their interest too to kind of combine both the ceremonies and have the first ever historic Oscars for two years. Um, and I just think it would just be a better idea because there'd be more movies to kind of pick from. And obviously there'd be more criticism towards what gets nominated because there's more movies. Um, and I think it would just make for a lot more interesting discussion versus them having to force spontaneous or something like that into like, best best picture or something um because i i really can't to be honest name six movies off the top of my head that i think belong anywhere near best picture that came out this year um but yeah that's just my my thoughts on the oscars the other thing i wanted to bring up is that so i don't know if you guys saw this but the oscars actually did this thing where they um now set new guidelines for what can be nominated for best picture uh so i think I'm definitely going to get this wrong, but it was like there's a certain quota of the number of POCs you have to have working on crew. Um, and 
I guess like the stories have to be in some way relating or maybe at least 40% of the best picture nominees have to have stories relating to people of color or sexual minorities or something like that. Um, yeah. I mean, so yeah, just to clarify, like it is, yeah. it's that you're essentially right, except it's more generally just referred to as like minority groups. So minority it could be, groups, okay. it could be people of color, um, people on the LGBTQIA uh, yeah. spectrum. Uh, it could just be women. Women is one of them. Yeah. Uh, or people with disabilities. The reason yeah. I clarify is because I think there was a, there was a lot of like um, uh, unrest, I guess, <laughs> the, for lack of a better word, when that was announced. But really, like, um, especially by including women in there, there are very few films that have been nominated or won in past years that wouldn't just still be nominated or win anyway. Exactly. And that's the interesting point about this that I wanted to mention. And I think it came down to like two or three movies in the last decade that wouldn't qualify. So one, this isn't as stringent as people are. Pretty much any Christopher Nolan movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's not as exclusive as people are making it out to be. But the main criticism seems to be, oh, the Oscars isn't about what the best movie of the year is anymore. It's about what's the most inclusive movie or the most diverse movie. And my response to that is, who cares what the Oscars thinks? I'm going to flat out say it. I, I hate the Oscars. Um, my two favorite movies of last year didn't even get a nomination at this ceremony. Please tell me. And Corey, as you've said famously in your blog, um, one of my worst habits is watching the Oscars. <laughs> and I, I just I just love that line. I remembered it. And I'm probably going to quote it in future conversations and say it's my own too. I appreciate so, that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, seriously, like I think, you know, that is the perfect response to really these criticisms in the sense that it's like the Oscars is an organization. They can do whatever the hell they want. They can make a rule saying that like only bet like only superhero movies should be best picture nominees. And you wouldn't be able to do anything about it except cry on Twitter. Like, like most things. So I think that honestly, like this is not that huge of a deal first off, because only like maybe one or two movies wouldn't qualify. The second, if it's going to push necessary change in the Hollywood industry, I wholeheartedly support that because obviously that is an issue. Like we're trying to get more representation out there. If this strategy or ploy that the Academy is employing works, I mean, I'm all for it. Um, I don't think that it's going to be as restrictive or anything. And something that's really interesting about film festivals too, and people that run film festivals is what they say is, they have really specific film festivals like Pittsburgh has the real film festival about like it's called R.E.E.L. or something like that. And it's only a film festival about stories with people who have disabilities. And I think uh, the Pittsburgh Jewish Foundation also has a film festival in Pittsburgh, um, which is, again, like that's that's specific, I think, to Jewish stories or made by Jewish filmmakers. Yeah. Um, so something I realized is that for film festivals, it's like the more you give people a specific guideline to work with, the more freedom they have in being creative with that guideline. So if I just said, okay, here's a film festival, make any movie you want, more often than not, people kind of crumble under all of that freedom. And I don't know what it is, like choice paradox even, but when you have something like, okay, here's what specific guidelines for this should be, a lot of the times people work around that and they are creative and make like these creative products in the end. Um, yeah, that's why I actually do sort of like the Oscar changes. I think they're they're really not all that like significant, like I said, in terms of how they impact necessarily 
change what gets nominated. But I think I like them in that sense that they do sort of force your hand to, if you were making movies about at least female characters before, hopefully you're at least doing that. Hopefully you're including more people of color, but both in front of and behind of the camera. Um, it'll, it's not necessarily enough to make a, like, a large systemic change in the industry, but it is enough to, again, I, yeah, I think kind of push people's creativity in, in new directions. Um, I'm pretty sure, though, they don't even go into effect until the next Oscar yeah, cycle. I actually, yeah. I actually have all of the um, criteria needed to, for a film to be deemed eligible, so I can read through it here just yeah. so everyone is on, like, in the audience is on the same page. So this is going to start for the 2024 Oscars, and a film must meet two out of the four following standards to be deemed eligible. Uh, the first is standard A, which is on-screen representation, themes, and narratives. So a lead or significant supporting actor must be... So at least one of the lead actors or significant supporting actors, actors is from an underrepresented racial or ethnic group. Um, this also includes the general ensemble cast. At least 30% of all actors in secondary and more minor roles are of at least two of the following underrepresented groups, um, women, racial groups, LGBTQ. And then the last subject in that is main story subject matter. The main storyline theme or narrative of the film is centered on an underrepresented group. Um, the following for standard B uh, creative leadership and department heads. So two of the following creative leadership positions and departments, whether that be casting, director, cinematography, uh, and so on, must be um, part of the underrepresented group. Um, and then it goes on the list other key roles just in filmmaking in general that that should apply to. Then there's industry access and opportunities. So the film or production company um, must have paid apprenticeships and internships opportunities for underrepresented groups. And then the final one is audience development, which is said representation in marketing, publicity, and distribution. Studio and or film has multiple in-house senior executives from an underrepresented group. Um, but those are all the standards. So, Right, which, yeah, it shows that you could... A movie could have, I mean, again, like a Christopher Nolan film, I use him as an example because his movies are always just filled with white, just white, straight guys. Um, I mean, as long as one of the execs for, uh, you know, uh, 20th Century Fox or Warner Brothers, who makes a lot of, make a lot of his films, uh, is a woman, you know, like that, or is, is a person of color. Um, not, not to undermine that, but just to kind of show that, like, literally like the oscars are going to stay largely the same i think under these rules i think they're just a way like samir said i think you see pretty pretty nicely there's a way to maybe push creativity ever so slightly in uh new directions kind of on this this line of diversity and we'll, and we'll wrap this up as we move into sort of our main topic but um i don't know hearing what you guys had to say about like not believing in the possibility of a ceremony this year uh i don't know i was i sort of think you're uh like you're not maybe uh, kind of underestimating the sort of the slate of films that we've gotten this year. This might just be a personal bias, but I know this is a film that we all enjoyed. Uh, I'm thinking of Spike Lee's *The Five Bloods*, um, and I bring that up specifically as um, a film that not is by no means a masterpiece, but I think is kind of just like in line with the kind of uh, 
uh, you know, the kind of films that we expect to see uh, uh, involved with the Oscars each year. Spike Lee, obviously a director who has always been around the Oscars, but not necessarily gotten his due. We want a screenplay for Black Klansman, but uh, we're still waiting on the best director or a best picture. Um, he, you know, infamously lost in 1989 to Driving Miss Daisy when he had to do the right thing. <clears throat> so, you know, this is a guy who, you know, there might be an asterisk next to his name if you found out he won in a strange year like 2020. But this is a director who clearly deserves some Oscar attention and could maybe get it in a weird year like like 2020. And just kind of list off some other films. So these are all films that are just going to be coming out on Netflix in the fall. And I think Netflix is sort of the space we should be looking at if we're thinking about films that might be Oscar eligible. Um, I know we briefly talked about this film earlier in the week, but there's Mank, David Fincher's new film uh, starring Gary Oldman about screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz, who ultimately wrote Citizen Kane. I mean, that's a movie uh, all in black and white directed by David Fincher about 1930s Hollywood. I mean, that is like that is like a, a Oscar voters wet dream. So um, even if it is just going to be on a streaming service, sounds to me like something that um, would often excite the Oscars. Uh, also on Netflix, you're going to get Hillbilly Elegy. This is by Ron Howard, another acclaimed director who's adapting a memoir, kind of exploring uh, Appalachia and the American dream. So that's starring Amy Adams, Glenn Close, uh, Frida Pinto. So, I mean, the, this is another big film with, uh, you know, big names attached to it coming out on Netflix with a sort of Oscar pedigree. Uh, the ones we will be missing out on is Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. We're probably not going to get this year. Probably not going to get Wes Anderson's The Friends Dispatch. These are some other films that we thought maybe would be Oscar Oscar worthy. But um, I don't know. I just bring those up again as examples of movies that could, um, you know, could excite audiences and could excite Oscar voters and maybe be enough to kind of at least create a quasi event or a quasi ceremony uh, early in 2021. The last one I'll mention too is uh, as of this episode, I don't believe its release date has been impacted like so many other films. They're calling Soul, the upcoming Pixar movie maybe like the best Pixar movie. I don't know if you guys mentioned that in last week's episode at all. Um, no. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we just did a Pixar episode and they're they're saying this upcoming Pixar film might be the best one Pixar's ever made. And that's that's high praise considering uh, some of the films they've put out. So just, just so you know, and Oscars have loved Pixar movies year after year. So just kind of no. throwing this out there. Well, sort of points. Going off of, of Pixar too, um, I know with Disney, I'm pretty sure it's just they're putting it right onto Disney Plus, very much like what they did with Onward. And I've also wow. have heard many things about yeah how Soul is going is potentially Pixar's best movie. And I mean, I the first trailer made me cry, so yeah. uh, I'm not necessarily um, emotionally prepared for that. But I mean, I <laughs> that is one that. I've been excited since I've seen the trailer for it. So hopefully that does get released at some point this year. Because yeah. uh, the other thing with that is too, it's just like if they would push the Oscars back or they would decide not to do the Oscars, that's very much huge slap in the face to all of the people who put so much time and effort into writing and making these films. Um, I know like Spike Lee, he definitely puts blood and soul into all of his movies so i think to to strip recognition away um would would kind of be a little bit of a senseless thing to do yeah i agree i, I think 
that was kind of my concern with some of, you know, that suggestion of sort of combining the next two years is, I mean, that again, that's unfair to everybody involved. Um, you know, that just means less people getting recognized um, or at least, you know, more people, I guess I have to say it means more people not getting recognized, if that makes sense. Um, so it's, it's, I don't know, it, it, it's a tricky thing. And I understand we may not have the large number of Oscar films we're used to, but um, I, I think this should be thought of as more of an opportunity as, than it is um, a concern or a reason to be to be afraid. But as Samir kind of alluded to uh, earlier, um, who gives a fuck about the Oscars? Do we even care about the Oscars? And so, as a sort of th th a sort of thought experiment into that idea of whether or not the Oscars matter, uh, or whether or not they're even a, a remotely correct in the decisions they make year after year, uh, we're going to take a look back at the last ten Oscars ceremonies. So that's um, the 82nd through the 92nd uh, Academy Awards, uh, and and consider the nominees that year and who we would have chosen. So our first Oscar ceremony is the 83rd Academy Awards. These were uh, on February 27, 2011. And the Oscar goes to... The King's Speech, Ian Canning, Emil Sherman, and Gareth Unwin Producers. Uh, but they were, of course, about films from 2010. This one, I think, will be pretty quick. Um, if I if I know you guys, like I think I do, but I'll just go through the nominees real quick. So that year we had Winter's Bone, True Grit, Toy Story 3. Speaking of Pixar, The Social Network, The Kids Are All Right, Inception, The Fighter, Black Swan, 127 Hours, and the winner that year was The King's Speech. Uh, what do you guys think was the correct uh, – did the Oscars get it right that year? Was The King's Speech the best movie? If not, what would you say was was would have been your win out of those nominees? I think, honestly, all three – could all three of us – I mean, all four of us might be able to say it at the exact same time. <laughs> well, I think I might be descending here. Uh, really? Samir's I might be bringing my first hot take to the table. The first All right. Well, I, let's let's do what Dane said. I'm going to count us in, and I'll let uh, at least the three of us say the film that we think is by far the best. Well, I I know what you'll say, so I'll also join in for participation. Okay. All right. Ready, guys? Three, two, one. The, the social, social network. network. The social network. That probably <laughs> sounded all out of sync. <laughs> I think it was very. I might. I counting. I can edit. Um. Yeah. I mean. Before we get into why we think the Session Network was the best film of 2010, I briefly want to maybe we'll have a do it more of as a debate. Samir, what would you say is the correct decision out of these films? Okay, I'll, I'll probably start with saying I love The Social Network, and when I saw it first, I really didn't appreciate it enough. And then I was watching like really interesting interviews with Quentin Tarantino describing Aaron Sorkin as the best working dialogist in Hollywood. And that was that was really interesting and it stuck with me. So then I saw Molly's game and like all this other work that he's done. And then I rewatched Social Network and it's striking to me because obviously like of the time that we live in and the amount of power that Facebook holds. It's a great film. Um but I just think that I just think that um x1 is like a near perfect film for me or I, I think it's a perfect film and this brings up an interesting thing because whenever we determine best like in terms of 
the the amount of weight that it holds like in terms of the amount of social relevance that it holds is that the most important factor because i think that technically like technically speaking in terms of how tight and fraught and exact the screenplay is i actually think black swan um is more is more perfect like i i i don't see any scenes in that movie where i feel might be unnecessary or might be fluff or anything like that like it's so high strung and kind of embodies the neuroticism or not neuroticism but like the frailty of someone's mind and the whole screenplay is just so high wire um throughout that thing and i don't know like i i just i mean this is definitely just my unhealthy obsession for black swan um but obviously like the social network if anybody said that you know of like you you guys think that and i think that that is definitely like the like it's a great logical choice um but i guess to me it's just a, something that boils down to social relevance versus um the technicalities of filmmaking and like the exact things of like the film itself versus the power it holds and like the what it influences so that's just my um quick take hot take first hot take if you will sam yes you're trying to get in I'd love to chime in on this because I did just watch Black Swan for the first time, like ended 45 minutes ago, probably. Um, And I would say of all of the movies of this list, um, I actually disagree with Corey's nonchalantness about us picking the social network, because I would say this was the hardest one um, for me to pick. Um, I think Black Swan is a perfect psychological thriller, like Samir said. Um, I was terrified for the majority of it um really disgusted but just that final 30 minutes are just you know perfection and um natalie portman's so good in it mila kunis is so good in it uh absolutely love that movie um looking at the movies from 2010 or, or the 2010 oscars uh nope the 2010 movies for the 2011 oscars um it's very top heavy um, I would say Social Network and Black Swan are are far and far beyond any of their other movies besides maybe Toy Story three, which is coincidentally the only Pixar movie uh, that was nominated for Best Picture in this last decade, uh, which might surprise some people. Um, but I think this, I think both those two movies, Black Swan and The Social Network, would be in my top, you know, maybe fifteen or twenty movies ever. Unfortunately for Black Swan, it just fell next to, you know, the true zeitgeist movie of the last decade and um, just one of the best scripts ever written. Um, It's Aaron Sorkin at his best. It's David Fincher at his best. Um, Justin Timberlake's in it. Like, how can you not have The Social Network as your favorite movie of that? But but to Samir's point, I, I I think it's very close to Black Swan. Um, those two movies being far and beyond better than the rest uh, for this year. Um, my so the Social Network, with how fast paced and just brilliant the dialogue is for that for the film, it honestly it's like an action movie. I you are just so invested in what's happening. All the characters have such quick dialogue. I mean, the opening of that film where they're in the bar 
and um, Jesse Eisenberg or Mark Zuckerberg is on a date and just the quick editing back and forth between the both of them, like you're, it's just a simple conversation between two people, but it it's playing off like the like climax to to the to the movie almost. I just all around like ever you really hang on to every word that is said in the social network. At least that's how it is for me. Yeah, I mean, I think you set up an interesting dichotomy there, Samir, when you talk about meaning or you talk about social impact versus like you know, perfection of a film. I think that if anything, what's funny to me about the social network is that it, it is definitely a more interesting film as the years have gone on because of obviously Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg's influence. I don't know if it's a more socially impactful film as the years. If anything, I've actually, I, I love the movie. I just picked it as definitely the best of, of 2010. Um, my concern about the social network has always been, I, I actually think if anything, um, it's it's a little problematic, and I think it a lot of it has to do with Aaron Sorkin's writing. Um, problematic is a strong word, but Aaron Sorkin is a magnificent writer. It's really fun to watch conversations ping pong back and forth, and um, and he's just a really dynamic writer. But he also does like kind of the most classic sort of like um, it's such a buzzword, but like neoliberal bullshit, where he just sort of like uh, humanizes even the worst of people. And just kind of like normalizes um, every sort of uh, problematic institution that we have. That film is absolutely perfect until the conversation towards the end between Rashida Jones' character and and uh, Mark Zuckerberg, where I, I think there's just a little bit too much of like, let's see, like he was a, just a misunderstood genius kind of thing going on, which I don't really necessarily love. But that's besides the point. I just picked it as uh, my, my best film, and I, I I think it is a lot better than. Black Swan, which for me, and this is meant to be a personal preference because Darren Aronofsky and I just don't really see, me, see eye to eye. <clears throat> I feel this way about a lot of Aronofsky's films where I just feel like they're sort of just wanting to suffocate you just to do so. Um, I will say, like, I've seen the Black Swan three or four times, and I think that's actually it's the kind of film that gets hurt upon rewatch. Nothing can really capture that first claustrophobic feeling of watching it, and I think. Sam, you're sort of responding to that, having just watched it. Um, but having seen the film a few times, to me, it just feels a little like exploitative and just kind of um, going for shock value, which, uh, again, I think it's a fun film. But to me, there's a lot of distance between that and something like The Social Network, which, as Dane said, is just so dynamic, so gripping, so fast paced, um, really just nothing like it um, in terms of how mundane maybe the events are and how heightened the intensity is anyway. A lot of that is due not just to Sorkin, but to Fincher, too, as a director. Yeah, yeah. I, and I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go, Sam. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'll go. Um, well, just going off like the fast pacedness of it, I think very much with performances, too. Yeah. Like Jesse Eisenberg, he it's like he's spitting off 10 words a second, I swear. Same thing with Justin Timberlake. They're all just rapid fire, rapid fire. And then honestly, Andrew Garfield's performance is I love in the movie because he's one of the only characters in the movie that doesn't talk at that fast pace. And I, I really think it just shows how Justin Timberlake or um, be what's his name in the movie? Justin Timberlake's character. 
Um, it's a guy from Napster. Yeah, yeah, Napster. His name is. But um, him and Jesse Eisenberg just um, Mark Zuckerberg. How fast their minds go, and yeah, all around. Like, I think it really is technically and performance wise near perfect. Yeah. I think yeah. we could debate this at nauseum because it just it sounds yeah. like we both appreciate both, but yeah. I think yeah, the one the one thing we can all agree on is that the King's speech fucking sucks and that should not yeah. have won. Okay. Yeah. That movie that movie is so boring. It is it is the when we talk about the t- I we haven't talked about the term yet, but the term Oscar bait gets thrown around a lot. The King's speech is absolute Oscar bait. It is a slow paced boring character study about something insignificant in the like focusing on a guy's speech impediment when all the you know there's all these poor soldiers being killed and all these war crimes being committed like for that the thing to be the thing that we focus on at the time is just that movie is that movie is not good that that is one of like the bottom three oscar winners of the past decade in my opinion yeah i'll definitely give it to the so Oh, go ahead, Samir. No, I was just going to say, I, I will say, as someone who grew up with a stutter, representation matters. So, um, not, but that's not, I, I don't think King's Speech was anywhere near any of the um, better films of that year. Um, and just real quick, just to kind of. I think, I think it was very, more recognized than Colin Firth, though. I, I, Colin Firth's performance in that is very impressive. Yeah, it, it's good. Um, he deserved to win he, Best Actor, but not Best Picture. Yeah. yeah I, go ahead, Samir. I just wanted to say, I think Corey went by social impact or social relevance better than like what i ended up saying um but yeah like not not necessarily its impact on on society but um it's it's we it's timeliness and its connections to how big of a foe facebook would eventually become to our thing that we call american society um and in, in, in terms of, I, I also really agree with the other point you made about one of the weaknesses of the social network, which which was a bit, I guess it, I, I took it to heart a bit more, um, but you hit the nail on the head when you said it, like the last sequence where he accepts a friend request. I mean, it's technically a rule in like any form of writing that you can't make, like this is really big in anime too with my Naruto fans, Dane, do you watch Naruto? I'm three seasons in. <laughs> Okay, well, I mean, I, I this was just what I thought, but you can't have a villain that's completely unsympathetic, unsympathetic, right? So I feel like that angle was included to kind of humanize him a bit more and be like, okay, well, he can't just be this one-dimensional, like, oh man, Mark Zuckerberg ruined everything. Like, we have to feel for him a bit more. Um, so as well-intentioned as that may be, I think that like 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 what you were saying. Um, it just didn't play off as right for me because it felt a little too cutesy tootsy in the sense that, Oh, well, he's this misunderstood genius. Um, so I just feel like they could have handled that last sequence better, but, um, yeah, completely, completely agree in terms of, um, we can debate about this ad nauseum, but, um, probably best to move on to the 2011. Yeah. And I'll, I'll yeah. move us on, but last thing I will just briefly say that I think this overall was a pretty impressive crop of nominees. We're going to go through some years here where I think um, it wasn't a very impressive batch of films that were nominated, but I think we're starting off with a pretty solid group of films, even movies like True Grit, 
um, I think is very a very underrated Coen Brothers film. Um, and yeah, mm-hmm. but um, speaking of uh, what I maybe I'm, I'm you know um, being a little too harsh before we even read the films, but I view this next class as one of the weaker film uh, groups of films. Um, and certainly one I think that is, will be fruitful for a lot of good debate, but I'm excited to talk about one film in particular here. So this announcement has no recording of it actually being announced. It just shows Tom Cruise as the, the artist is announced. So we took this from a phone recording in 2011 off of an Android, so it's not the best sound quality. And the Oscar goes to... But these are our nominees in uh, 2012 for the 2011 films. We have War Horse, which I'm just going to briefly say because I don't think anybody picked it, is easily the most forgettable Steven Spielberg movie of all time. War Horse. We have The Tree of Life. We have Moneyball. We have Midnight in Paris. We have Hugo. We have The Help. We have Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. We have The Descendants. And then the winner that year was The Artist. A lot of forgettable films in that group. Extremely oh, yeah. Loud and Incredibly Close. Very forgettable film. Um, yeah, but anyway, let's go was, around. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sorry. To that. Should we sneak around? I'm the top left on... On this side, and I've got to leave at nine thirties. Briefly, a brief hiatus. So I guess get your opinion out quick. Yeah. Okay. Um. So I think that the best movie this year, um, was The Descendants. The Descendants is probably I I I think it's in my top ten of all time. Um. I think it's this hugely underrated movie that just kind of got swept under the rug. I didn't discover this movie until maybe three years ago or something. Like I was just looking like pretty similar to what we were doing um the the oscar nominees so i read somewhere about george clooney's performance in this movie and i watched it and i was absolutely awestruck um i guess for me the one thing i'll say is that i'm not like i'm not crazy about completely reinventing the wheel and changing narrative and doing a christopher nolan thing where you play with screenplay and all this stuff so much i'm honestly okay with the conventional aristotelian plot and conventional narrative but my problem is it's done right so few times like i think we get a lot of movies that that just don't live up to it i guess the best analogy i can make for it is that you know when you go to like a five-star restaurant or something like that they'll give you like this really experimental meal with like with like mint leaves and like this little like ratatouille whatever in the middle of it um and the opposite, like the contrary image to that is pizza. And whenever you think pizza, you think of Domino's. But the thing is, pizza, even as familiar as it is, can be done really, really well. And when that pizza is really, really good, I, I find it far more favorable to that five-star Michelin star restaurant meal. So what I mean by this is that I think The Descendants is one of those movies that's just really, really good pizza in the sense that yeah okay it follows that arc and it follows the constraints and whatever's like the like the strengths and weaknesses of the conventional narrative but i think that it's just it does it so well 
Um, and George Clooney's performance in this movie really wins me over. I think it's just a super heartfelt story about a family. Um, before I go, I'm going to throw my second hot take on here. Uh, so just briefly down this list, extremely loud and incredibly close. Um, I didn't really find this to be a memorable movie. War Horse, neither. Moneyball, I believe that's Aaron Sorkin again. Again, some of his like classic dynamic dialogue. I, I really enjoyed this movie. I think he deserved to be nominated, but not the best. Um, Midnight in Paris. Okay, despite you know all the stuff with Woody Allen and him being a super shitty person, I, I, re I really do. I'd be remiss if I said that I didn't enjoy him as a director. And I think this is one of my favorite films um, because I think it captures the concept of nostalgia really, really well. Um, I don't think it's the best this year. And I'm not a huge fan of Owen Wilson, but I think that it's 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 a good movie. It's a cute movie, and I think it's Woody Allen just injecting his like infective, like light breezy charm into it. Um, and he actually has something meaningful to say here. I think for for once, because his last like ten movies he didn't. Um, so Midnight in Paris. I think it won the best original screenplay that year, which I thought it deserved. Hugo, an experimental Martin Scorsese venture. Um, we get we get those pretty often. Um, the help a lot has been said about this movie in in terms of how it's kind of problematic or it can be viewed as a problematic lens now. I wasn't a huge fan of it. Um, okay, my biggest hot take before I go: The Tree of Life. Okay, I really like Terrence Malick, and I think somebody said it best, and I, I completely agree with this. There's only two movies I can think of that really deal with the scope like in terms of what they're attempting to tackle is that big um and that is 2001 space odyssey the second is tree of life where they're literally just taking on the universe why we're here and all of that other films have done it but these take them on as like a head value like in tree of life you see shots cutting to dinosaurs um drinking water from a lake then in 2001, you see, obviously, that whole opening 20-minute sequence. That being said, I think that the Terrence Malick-isms here kind of off-put it for me because there's that Brad Pitt and Sean Penn storyline that I just don't think is very effective. Um, or I guess it was just kind of forgettable for me. Obviously, Emmanuel Lubezki is a cinematographer for this absolutely kills it and like all terrence malick's movies it's visual poetry it's absolutely gorgeous to watch it's 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 gorgeous and it's such a it's such a moving eye candy work like if, even if it had no dialogue i feel like i would have just been like wow visually arresting you know scenes um I guess to sum up my major gripe with this movie is that if there was a sequence in there of Brad Pitt taking a shit for 10 minutes and it was an angelic choir singing and people whispering and talking like this, um, I, I, I don't think it would lose, you would lose that much from the movie because it just feels so in line with, with inter with um, a lot of the other stuff that's there. Uh, so the, the angelic choirisms and the whispering and the biblical stuff is, is great and I really enjoyed that in Badlands. My personal favorite of Terrence Malick is Days in Heaven, um, which I would highly recommend. Uh, Beautiful film, yeah. At, great. Like, if you haven't seen that one, but um, Tree, Tree of Life, I think, obviously, in terms of what it takes on and everything that it attempts to talk about, 
it does pretty well with the tasks that it kind of lays out for itself. But I just think that it, it kind of ventures into that, um, all right, over dramatic and a bit corny territory, especially in the last 15 minutes. Um, so it, it succumbs a little bit. Um, all right, all right, get out of here, Samir. <laughs> it's, it's past 9.30. Get out of here. That's my hot take. I'll, I'll be back in 15 minutes. I'm interested to hear the, the debate, though. Okay, all right. I want to respond just, just because I watched The Descendants um, like an hour ago. Okay. Um, I'll say this, but there's a lot to there's a lot to respond to what uh, Samir just said, and, and we'll kind of go through some of it. I'll start by saying that the Tree of Life would have been my pick this year. I'm a huge, huge fan of this film, and I'll get to that maybe a little later on after I hear your your choices. Um, but let's talk about the Descendants really quick. I watched the Descendants today. I'm a huge Alexander Payne fan. Fan. Um, he is. Um, a lot of great films, one of which I think we'll get to a little bit later in this episode. I, I, um, I think I'm sure we'll talk about. But The Descendants, to me, to be honest, very just like standard film. And I, I, I actually thought uh, Samir's reasoning was interesting because the exact reason that I didn't love the film um, was what he cited as one of his strongest uh, you know, uh, points was, was George Clooney's performance. I thought, to me... I've seen plenty of movies about sort of like middle-aged dads struggling with their lives and like to connect with their families. And they're a lot more believable when they're not as handsome and smooth and likable as George freaking Clooney. Like I don't, I don't care that your life is hard when you're George Clooney. That's just like, that's just the truth. Like I think George Clooney is very good at playing like, you know, an oceans type character where he's like a little smarmy, but he's very suave. Um, and he just kind of like, you know, has his shit together. That's George Clooney. He looks like that kind of guy, and he's very good at playing that kind of guy. But this is similar to why I didn't love him in uh, Up in the Air, another Oscar-nominated film from a few years prior to this. Um, I just don't care about George Clooney facing like you know domestic hardship. It just doesn't feel believable to me. It doesn't feel authentic to me. I did think the film had some funny, you know, sweet moments, and it was kind of cool actually to see a movie about Hawaii. Weirdly enough, I feel like we haven't really seen a lot of Hawaii on film, or at least Hawaii. Um, as it genuinely exists and not as this like tropical paradise. The film also opens with like 45 minutes of straight um, uh, narration that it just feels like so expository and unnecessary. He's just straight up like, hello, like I live in Hawaii. My wife is sick and I have uh, two kids. Are, we are selling this property and we are trying to figure out what to do with it. Okay, now the movie will start. But that lasts for like 30 to 40 minutes. And it just feels, I often am skeptical of voiceover and, I feel like it usually can be shown through the image. And in this case, I definitely feel like this, they could have been a lot more showing, not telling. Dude, I don't know. It was just a movie that disappointed me, but I know it's one that you're a big fan of, Sam. So I'm curious to hear where you sit uh, on the, these 2011 films uh, and where you think uh, the Oscar should have gone. Between you guys, I don't. I I will never understand why Samir loves The Descendants as much as he does. Um, I, I think to a lot of your points, like, I think a lot of it, the first, like, 30 minutes are very uh, telling, not showing. Um, I, I totally agree with that. I disagree about the George Clooney thing. Like, I think maybe you just, like, want to fuck George Clooney is what I've gotten from this whole thing. Be part of um, yeah, I mean, and, like, no, no hate, because definitely same, especially in Up in the Air. Um, but I think... Would you want to fuck him in the air? I mean, <laughs> if... If I've had my choice of on the ground and in the air, it would probably be a, a coin flip. Um, so, 
but what a oh sorry i was just gonna say is this this um i just i disagree with you a lot on the descendants i kind of shared some of my reasons why and then i um we're gonna talk about tree of life in a second i think after we kind of finish this descendants talk but um yeah so that's kind of my thoughts on the descendants obviously i think the tree of life is by far the best film of 2011 uh, but Sam, I know you're a fan of The Descendants, maybe not as much as Samir, but you're definitely a fan. So I'm curious to see where you stand on these films, where you think the Oscar should have gone that year. Uh, thank you, Corey, uh, for asking me that question. Uh, in response, I would say uh, I'm certainly in the middle of you guys uh, in terms of liking The Descendants. Um, I would say um, it's great pizza, as we say, I think it's it's more of like a deep dish, would you say, Samir? Or maybe a thin yeah. crust? Where, where do you lie on that? I'm not a deep dish guy. I like thin crust more. If it's an Oakland pizzeria, I'd say it's like like Pizza Romano. Like It is pretty good, and it's like better than most of the other pizzas out there. But you go anywhere else, and it ends up not being that special. Wait, can I can, – can you real quick, Corey, for like recap your major criticisms of it? I, I, mean, I just wanted to – because I missed that. I know it's recorded on there, but can you do yeah, it? Like yeah. no, so basically I just sort of felt like, um, you, know, you mentioned George Clooney's performance as being like one of the strong points of the film. I felt like if anything, I just can't get myself to care very much about um, like, um, like, like if I've seen a lot of movies about middle-aged dads, you know, struggling to connect with their families and, you know, getting cheated on and stuff. And like, I don't know, like it, that's all well and good if it's, um, you know, a different actor, but if it's George Clooney, who is to me really good at playing like a Danny Ocean type, right? Like he's very smooth. He's very powerful. He's always got things under control. That's George Clooney to me. I don't know. I, I just don't really buy him as like um, someone who, first of all, like his wife cheats on George Clooney with freaking Shaggy from this, the live action Scooby-Doo's Matthew Lillard. Like, I don't know, man, but like, I just, hey, I, I don't buy that. So trash talk Matthew Lillard. That was that was that was it, one thing for me. But really, it was even more broadly. The first roughly forty-five minutes of that film are straight-up exposition. Like it's literally a, a voiceover saying, um, "Like hi, you know, I am this character, and I live in Hawaii. My family owns this land, and we're trying and we're trying to figure out what to do with it. I have two daughters. One is this age. One is this age. My wife is in a coma. Um, blah blah blah. Like there's just it's 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 straight up telling you." It just feels very overwritten in that sense. And um, as much as I love Alexander Payne, and again, um, I love a lot of his films. There's one in particular I'm really excited to talk about a little later on. Um, this one just didn't do it for me in the same way. Good film. It was it's definitely sweet and funny, but just not not anything really affecting for me. Okay. Uh, and and my my hot take is that Corey, Corey does, in fact, want to have sex with George Clooney, which is why he <laughs> doesn't like The Descendants. Um, as opposed to me, who has never felt any sexual or romantic feelings towards George Clooney, so I feel like I can objectively uh, rate this movie as as very good. Um, a little, a little to Corey's point, uh, he enjoyed the fact that it was set in Hawaii. Uh, I also did. Um, I think that is an exposition of like no one thinks of a sad tropical movie, um, and I think that. The Descendants really struck a, a like this really interesting tone where it's like the like the leisure and relaxation of the surroundings are a complete juxtaposition to the gravity of the situation. Um, I think that just makes like a really really interesting dynamic that I had never really seen before. Um, so 
Um, I think The Descendants is really good. I definitely have it as one of like, you know, three or four best of this year. I think this year is is poor for a lot of reasons, but there's actually a couple movies that I absolutely love from this year. Uh, the Descendants being one of them. I actually do like The Artist. Um, a lot of people have said that movie has not aged well. Uh, I would not know because I have not seen it since theaters, but I remember really enjoying it when it came out. Um, and The Tree of Life is amazing. Um, we talked about the, you know, the linkage between that and 2001 Space Odyssey. I don't know if you guys thought about watching it, but it felt like, to me, Tree of Life is a 2001 Space Odyssey with a little more heart. Um, yeah. I find Kubrick's I find Kubrick's films to be a little sterile, and it's kind of like this is how it is, this is life, this is the history of it all, um, and it kind of lacks that like personal element to me. Uh, whereas Tutha, whereas Tree of Life is 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 very focused on you know the monotony of everyday life and how that keys into you know the greater experience of the world, which is where I think the Tree of Life is actually just complete genius i love that part of it so i'm interested to hear what you guys think about that yeah that film to me is i mean i i texted you a while back sam like oh, you gotta watch this film it's like a religious experience um which it, it, you know is obvious in one sense because terrence malick is a very religious director and he does include a lot of like god imagery and uh commentary in his films um, but i'm not a remotely religious person but that film it's just it's very spiritual it's it's it it really, like like Samir kind of said early on, really captures the entirety of, of the human existence. And I will grant you, Samir, that I do think Malik's style is easily parodied. Like, you could easily poke fun at it. Like, I could totally make a sort of spoof of it that is ridiculous and, like, does include a guy sitting on the toilet and whispering some nonsense and then cutting to him, you know, dying on his, his deathbed and all of a sudden cut, cutting to him being born. Honestly, like, that was so dinosaurs. Cool. Like I honestly, like I, like Malik has tapped into something that, ha- I mean, it has failed. And I don't know if you guys have seen Song to Song or um, Night of Cups. Yeah. He has some other movies that um, don't quite land the same, and his style can get a little exhausting. But I do think with the Tree of Life, he really found an, the absolute perfect story to tell through his style, um, and just perfect means by which to capture uh, human existence. I think the, the entire sequence. Um, with the dinosaurs, incredible, but even just the sequence of just the universe, universe sort of being formed, and we're just kind of watching, like a sort of just like honestly, it's like flashes of color and like random sort of images just kind of flash across the screen. You don't even know what you're watching, but it's quiet and it's it's relaxing and it's it lulls you into this incredible sensation that very few films can achieve. This is probably my favorite film um, of the entire decade. That's how much I love it. Um, it is. I think I think an absolute an absolute masterpiece. I love actually like Moneyball. Um, is I think is a very very good movie. Um, I know you as an Oakland A's fan, Sam, probably um, enjoy that one too a lot. Um, but this to me, The Tree of Life, just does something that no other film has ever done, and I'm not sure we'll ever do again. Even like you said, Sam, I think 2001 doesn't quite achieve it because it does feel a little impersonal compared to The Tree of Life, which feels very personal and very emotional and very in tune with with uh, human life. Uh, I, I think it's, I mean, I can't say enough about this film. I think it's absolutely a masterpiece, but I don't want to rant too long about it. So, uh, any other thoughts on the tree of life before we let Dane share, uh, what he thinks will be the film of the year. It's, it's interesting because I didn't actually say what my favorite movie of 2011 was, 
and Corey uh-huh. alluded to it. Yes, Moneyball is the best sports movie ever made by a large margin. And that is my, my second hot take of the day. Um, the other being that Black Swan is close to the social network. But um, for those, Corey alluded to it, I am a, a diehard Oakland A's fan. It's the only only sports team that I actually like religiously follow. Um, just as like an eight, eight or nine-year-old, I just became obsessed with them because all my friends were San Francisco Giants fans and I wanted to be different. That is and, so in character yeah. for you. Yeah, and also yellow is my, yellow is my favorite color. Um, but Moneyball, to me, like I have always been utterly fascinated with the idea of like asking why do we do things the certain ways that we do and how can we rethink a problem? It's it's also it's just like a perfect storm. Like I feel like when I write I rate this movie, I don't even know if I'm writing it like as a movie itself or just like what it means to me as a person because my two loves in life are like the Oakland A's and Advanced Analytics and Aaron Sorkin scripts. So it's like it just combines all three. It's it, Michael Lewis's original book Moneyball is my favorite book of all time. Um and I think this adaptation is adaptation is is as good as the book. Um, I love Moneyball. Definitely my favorite movie from the year. Uh, with True of Life, uh, a close second, but Moneyball is definitely my favorite from this year. Hey, real quick, Moneyball, I agree, absolutely and great. It, um, very underrated Philip Seymour Hoffman performance. Um, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll um, shut up in a sec, but the best sport movie of all time, because you kind of alluded to it, um, it's close. It's not Moneyball, but it is directed by Bennett Miller, who who directed Moneyball, it's Foxcatcher. I don't know if you guys have seen Foxcatcher. Yeah, yeah. Foxcatcher's yeah. excellent. That, I, think that, that, I just want to bring it up now because we're not going to get to talk about it because it did not get nominated for Best Picture. It's actually one of, um, like I think, three or four films all time be nominated for Best Director and not Best Picture, um, which is a little fun fact. Um, but yeah, I just want to throw it out there. I, I do love Moneyball a lot. I think Ben and Mill is a great director. He also directed Capote, which is a great film. Um, but Foxcatcher to me is like a next level sports film. Shout out to like Steve Carell. Another another fun fact about it is that it features one of our own. It features Dane Holtz's dad is talked about in the original book because Dane Holtz's dad was a relief pitcher for the A's during the 2002 season. Uh, he was traded that year, and they briefly mention it. And when I read it, I was like, Mike Holtz. I was like, Oh wait, I was like, Holtz isn't like dane's dad a former pitcher and i texted him he's like yeah that's my dad and i was like oh shit yep that's my daddy yeah so you know and he almost got played by casey pratt or uh, by uh what's his name uh chris pratt which would have been great imagine if your dad had been played by chris pratt Uh, honestly that would be my founding achievement in life and it's not even my achievement um yeah so well this in Moneyball, my dad's name, there's like there's a moment in the uh dugout where it's kind of like during a montage sequence, Brad Pitt picks up, takes off the um lineup inside the uh dugout, and my dad's name is at the bottom of the list. So yeah, fun, fun fact. But moving on from that, um, I think we've been talking a lot about 2011, so I'm gonna be very brief with this. Personally, 2011 is the movies I've seen the least or is the year I have seen the least movies in. Um, I have seen Moneyball and I even though 
there's a bit of a personal connection to it. I do think all around like Moneyball is a, a really well-made movie. Um, Jonah Hill's performance is is great. Um, but other than that, I've not seen Tree of Life. Uh, but the hype that has been built for that movie during this podcast is insane. So I'll certainly be checking that out. Um, but with that said, because Moneyball is one of the only few movies of this decade, I'm going to go with Moneyball. Um, so should we move on to, to 2012? Yeah. Yeah. So we just, we just spent a lot of time there. Um, some fun, just like I said, we crop movies, but some fun movies in there to kind of debate. Um, moving on to, uh, the 2013 ceremony of the 2012 films. This one, um, I'll be honest guys talking about, uh, we crop some movies. This is one that I'm not really passionate about any of these. And so we can no. kind of fly through unless you guys really want to stop and talk about any. And now for the moment we have all been waiting for. And the Oscar goes to Argo. Congratulations. Let's go over through these nominees really quickly. We got Zero Dark Thirty. We have Silver Linings Playbook. We have Lincoln. We have Life of Pi. Les Miserables. Django Unchained, Peace of the Southern Wild, more. And then the winner that year was Argo, directed by Ben Affleck. So I'll go ahead and talk about Lincoln. Um, I do think Lincoln is a, it's a great movie, um, but it is fucking long, like Bible long. It's, I, say, I made the mistake of seeing this movie at 11 o'clock at night. And I did not get out of the theater until like 2.45 and it was awful. Um, I was falling asleep. It was not a fun movie to sit around. Um, and yeah, I'll just I give my, my oh, yeah, go ahead with Lincoln. I, I have a fun Lincoln story too, where I, I remember I saw it with some friends in middle school um, and they weren't really like movie people, but like they would kind of just go with me to see whatever I wanted to see. But I actually had to finish that movie on my own. They left the theater because they said they're like, this is good, but it's just so fucking long. My parents want me home. So they left, and I'd have my parents come pick me up from the movie theater by myself. It's a fun little uh, anecdote about Lincoln. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think, real real quick, I think we, we don't have to spend too much time on this. I'll say the only movie I liked from this year is Silver Linings. Um, every other movie is either it was fine, but the rest just do not do it for me. I think, I, yeah. It's the mo- is by far my least favorite of the years, which is yeah. interesting because it was an amazing year for music and a horrible year for movies. I think 2012, with 2012, was- a lot of those movies have um, elements of them that are really good, but just all around are not the best films. Um, yeah, I guess... While I don't think it's the weakest year, I would say that it is certainly a weak year. If I have to pick out movies that I did really like and enjoy and would probably still put on my list, um, I've got some probably top 20s in there, maybe probably top 30, but um, I, still, I still really like Django Unchained. I actually think it's like top three in terms of Quentin Tarantino for me. His filmography is really 50-50 for me, and I think that this is probably among one of my favorites of his because i think he's best when he has this laser focus on a time period or he has something that he's working with and 
he just has a story to tell about it. Um, I think it's a really entertaining story. I I enjoyed Leo DiCaprio's performances on it, and I really enjoy hearing the very valid criticisms about kind of taking a lighter, like a lighter heart to something as tragic as slavery. Um, and he did it in 2009 with Inglorious Bastards, which I also really enjoyed. Um, maybe that's just me because I I really hated Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So thinking about how much I hated that movie. I keep coming back to Django and Inglorious and being like, wow, maybe that's also part of the reasons. But I would be lying if I said that I didn't really enjoy um, Django. So Silver Linings Playbook, I think, is a phenomenal movie. Again, another example of really good pizza in the sense that it just feels like, okay, we're dealing with something familiar here, like that familiar family drama. Um, but it's just done so well. The acting is so good. And I think it's one of those things that the screenplay is just perfect. Like it's funny, it's it's moving, it's touching. Um, and the fact that it's so good that I still remember it. Like how many of these family drama movies that like do we watch? So many come out and there's only a few that I would remember, you know, the rest of my life because they're that good. Um, I just finished watching The Sopranos, which is a side note. And um, well, I didn't just finish. I watched it like three months ago. But that's another one of those shows that really gets that family dynamic right. And I think that might honestly be my favorite genre. Like earlier today, um, we were talking about our favorite genres in movies. Mine might actually be the family drama. And I think a really, really, really good family drama is a super powerful thing because it's something a lot of people can see themselves in. Um, also just understand the human experience in this small collective that we kind of grow up in. Um, and then... Yeah, I was I, I really feel really lukewarm about the rest of these movies, but one thing I will say, Life of Pi by Ang Lee. Um listen, like th th this is a great movie, great visuals, and the reason that I think it's worth mentioning is this is the only movie as a person of Indian descent. Um it's, it's first of all, it's directed by a Chinese guy, Ang Lee, but yeah. I think this is the only movie that picks india and indian culture the right way out of any movie in my experience um that has come out that i can think of in terms of getting well, it's, you should say that samir I'm not, yeah. sorry i don't mean to, to cut you off no, no, but, no, yeah uh life of pi is my choice actually for um the best film out of these nominees um i was really close to picking several lines playbook i'm a huge philadelphia eagles fan so kind of like sam's connection moneyball i do sort of like a personal connection to um, Sutherland's playbook that I really appreciated is kind of seeing this Philadelphia family rally behind the Eagles. Um, it was very relatable. And I, I even they, they reference a lot of specific real life games in that movie that I remember watching with my dad. Like there's this this uh, blowout win over the Cowboys. I remember it was 44 to six where Brian Dawkins returned to fumble for a touchdown. They reference that in the movie. And I remember that happening in real life. So some of that stuff is pretty cool to me. The Life of Pi to me, um, is another one that it's not, I can't say it's on the level of the tree of life in, in the way it, it captures the human experience by any means, but it is trying to do something there with about this relationship between this boy uh, and this tiger. Um, by the way, it's based off a really good book. I, remember, I read the book yeah. and also aid my, my, my love for the movie, um, but it's doing something there where it's really kind of capturing something a little more profound and a little more deep um, than you might expect. Um, and it does have some really cool visuals in the tiger and even the ocean that they're, that they're stranded in. Um, 
And I don't know, I think, I think it, Ang Lee to me is a director I've always really resonated with. I think he's always trying to at least do something different with every movie he makes. Um, and this is an example of that. I think it is a standout in what is otherwise a pretty weak crop of movies. Yeah. I think that, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I've, I've read the book as well. And I can say that it's really interesting because the book is like this, like theological, philosophical, like thought exercise. And right. the movie that, that like fail in that sense, but it also succeeds in others. Yeah, like it, first of all, adapting that book as a movie, as an interesting movie and as a mainstream movie that is supposed to take on box offices is a feat because so much of that book is just like philosophical explanation. Um, And that's why you kind of see that in the movie, like the action of it kind of drops at a certain stretch of it um, before it kind of gets into more of what it really wants to say. As far as authenticity, I think, like I said before, like this movie out of any other one that I've seen captures the simp- like the authenticity of the culture um, and the beauty in the simple things. And even a lot of like Indian directors, practically all of them, they don't get that right. And they fumble the bag with that. But Ang Lee, who is an outsider to it, even though he had a lot of people, he had a lot of consultants who knew the culture. Um, was able to get that spot on and really depict it visually the way that I think it should be depicted more in movies. Um, the, the, the acting is great. They casted actual Indian actors. Um, and yeah, I just think visually it's a great, great movie. So um, I don't want to belabor the point. So yeah. yeah. Also, the last thing, weird thing I'll say about that Oscar ceremony, I remember that Oscar ceremony being very memorable. That was the year that Seth MacFarlane hosted. Um, oh, yeah. For whatever reason, there was a lot of backlash to his his jokes and his monologues. It was much edgier than they were in previous years. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't. I for some reason that that ceremony really sticks out to me as a as a memory in my Oscars watching life. Whereas so many others, um, you really don't remember the specifics of, of, of the ceremony. Right. Where um, he did that yeah. huge song in the beginning, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, so we'll move on to the next year. Um, I I have sort of made an executive decision. Um, I think we'll all agree that we're going to split our conversation about the, pre- the past decade um, into another episode. So I think we're going to do two more Oscar ceremonies going running up to the, uh, the uh, or maybe three more, we'll run up to the 2015 films. Um, but I think we're going to fly through these next ones because there are some a few here that I think will be, I think, pretty uh, open and shut. Um, so again, we're talking about the 2014 ceremony. This would have been about the 2013 films. And the Oscar goes to... Twelve Years a Slave, Brad Pitt, Vinnie Gardner, Jeremy Kleiner, Steve McQueen, and Anthony Katagas, producers. Uh, interesting crop of movies here. We have The Wolf of Wall Street, which is like the ultimate film bro movie. We have Philomena. We have Nebraska. We have Her, which is probably like like one, if, if Wolf of Wall Street's 1A, this is like 1B in like the film bro world. We have uh, Gravity, interesting film. Dallas Buyers Club, Captain Phillips, uh, and American Hustle, another David O. Russell film, uh, just like Silverline's Playbook. But the winner that year was 12 Years a Slave. So that's an interesting group of films. What do you guys think uh, was the, did they get it right with 12 Years a Slave? Uh, or do you, would you see another movie here as the rightful Oscar winner? I, I think I'll, they got it right. 
Yeah, I'll say that this is the first year of the first three. I think we're all in agreement that the first three years, they got it wrong. I don't think any of us thought that the Best Picture winner was the best picture available. I would say 12 Years a Slave is not my favorite of these movies. Um, Like the film Bro, I Am, Her is my favorite movie of these. And if I'm going to be honest, I remember very little from 12 Years a Slave. I remember loving it and thinking it was, it was really powerful. But for how powerful it was, I also don't remember much of it. Um, I, her, is my, her is by far my favorite movie from this, from this list, though. Um, the score is amazing. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is fantastic in it. Um, Should have won Best Actor this year, I think. Um, I think there's some good movies here, but um, it's very top-heavy. Uh, I think... Uh, Dallas Buyers Club is also very good. Um, can I just say, just one off, American Hustle is terrible. Fuck that. Yeah, American Hustle. I don't. I, it might be the yeah, worst of uh, the worst movie we've listed so far as getting nominated for Best Picture. That movie was not good. Yeah. yeah. It really sort of rode the momentum of Civil Lines Playbook a year before. I felt like. Yeah. Like, it just it just gave you more David O. Russell with Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper. So you were just like, yeah, sure, let's do it. But like, and I had like fat Christian Bale, which seems to always be exciting for some reason. But uh, yeah, not a good movie. Yeah. Um, Sam, did you, were you going to say something else? Um, I, would, yeah. I don't think they got it wrong by saying 12 Years a Slave. Yeah, yeah I, I would this, um, this is a year where um, it's not as obvious necessarily. Uh, which one should emerge? Like, I agree that it was definitely clear that we should pick another film besides the winner in every year prior. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't fault you guys if you went with Twelve Years, Twelve Years a Slave here, um, but I'm curious, Samir, sh- share uh, which you think is the best of this crop. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think Twelve Years a Slave is a great movie. It's a slow, beautiful movie, um, and it's what's really interesting is that the criticism that followed after it. Um, in terms of conversation about how Hollywood is just so keen on these slavery movies and like insistent on depicting black people and like black bodies as slaves like over and over again and it's just like come on man like we're tired of this like yeah obviously these are these are important stories to tell but it kind of begins to take a weird backfiring effect when you keep um, when you kind of develop this fixation around okay this is the narrative i want to keep portraying um again i think it's a great movie michael fassbender is just he's a fun he's one of my favorite working actors right now um i think he's just really doesn't get enough credit i think um despite all the credit that he does get i still think he deserves more he's just a phenomenal actor um i actually agree with sam on this one and i think her is my favorite movie of this i think I think it's spike johnsy's best and i think it is such a such a unique movie in the sense that it does sci-fi the way i wanted to do sci-fi where it's just like it's barely sci-fi and like it uses that right and the best analogy i can make to it is the way frank ocean uses auto-tune where he doesn't overly use it but he uses it and he meshes it with his own artistic style so it's it's there and it's not, and it's just, it complements. It doesn't override any of the other flavors going on in the movie. So the sci-fi setting really works here. And 
screenplay wise, it's just it's so brilliant. It's so brilliant in terms of like everybody has probably thought hearing Siri or Alexa and like all of these like robot woman voices, like I think that eventually someone or the other would have made this movie and they would have made it a lot worse and it probably would have gone direct to Amazon Prime and like six people would have watched it. But I think this movie coming out when it did and it being done by Spike Jonze was the biggest gift to that concept. Um, so that's open and shut. The thing I will say, I think The Wolf of Wall Street is a terrific film. And it is such a shame that that movie has kind of been stolen by Pike guys in University of Florida and <laughs> all of like, you know, like I think that there's something about developing just characters right that just live in cultural consciousness like jordan belfort like there's jordan belfort the guy and then there's leo dicaprio's jordan belfort he just occupies to this day such a big space in like this american myth that we're living right now um of just because ev everybody the back of their mind has this uh, like this idea of this you know coked up stockbroker just making crazy money coming from nothing like it's literally the the capitalist tale like andrew carnegie um the lehman brothers like all of this so that kind of american like mythology is wrapped up into this movie and obviously leo kills it here i think the screenplay is fun it's super fast um and even though it's a long movie that obviously it has its faults like it becomes like a cautionary tale that gets a bit drab towards the end like a bit over with its point but thinking about how memorable it is and the influence that it's had and just how great the dialogue is and and still like individual scenes from that movie you still see them you know being resurfaced on twitter and facebook and all these sites i think that really means something in the sense that they were really powerful and people liked them so much and they had it, they did what they wanted to do so well um, that, you know, I, I think it's definitely worth worth crediting for that, um, th despite yeah. the flaws. Yeah, the I thought was a bit average. The last film I'm going to point out in my little spiel here, and I think Corey is definitely going to agree with me, is Nebraska. Um, being the Alexander Payne fan I am, um, evident from how much I love The Descendants, I think he's such a phenomenal director. And he nails it again with this movie. Again, it's underrated. I don't think it's talked about enough. And I think really more people should see this movie. The fact that it's called Nebraska isn't doing it any favors. Because <laughs> there's nothing appealing about that string of sound uttered by a person's mouth. But <laughs> I, think, I think it really is just this powerful, small, stable tale. Um, I don't think it's the best of this year. And, but I think it's a movie that's worth shouting out and watching. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'll respond to something in a sec. But, Dan, I heard you say that you think they did get it right this year with 12 Years of Slave. Um, I mean, definitely between 12 Years of Slave and her for me. Um, I think, similar situation, like her is such a unique, well written movie. I also think, like, 12 Years of Slave brings a bunch of amazing performances together and makes it like a um like almost an, an event movie um so i don't know i'm very i'm very back and forth uh, on the both of them but i i'm pretty much equal on what i like 
on how much I like both movies. So I, I I'll just I probably gonna side with Twelve Years a Slave as what I I would 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 go with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think uh I, again, Twelve Years a Slave um deserved it that year. I think it's worth noting that Steve McQueen was the first black director to ever win a Best Picture. I mean, that is that's crazy that that happened as recently as it did. Um, Unbelievable. You know, years later by Barry Jenkins with Moonlight. So like. Uh, he definitely broke um, a barrier, a really significant barrier, um, with a, a very impressive film and w- one of the most historically accurate and probably necessary depictions of slavery. Necessary is a d- difficult word because I do agree with you, Samir. There's something to be said for just kind of perpetuating the depiction of black bodies and slavery over and over and over and putting black actors through that sort of experience. Um, you know, like the Lupita Nyong'o scene is one of the most honestly like I, could, I probably could never rewatch that movie just because that scene is just so so upsetting and um and unsettling but um yeah it is a great film uh we're gonna r- wrap up this year about just i'll mention mine real quick and samir mentioned it, it is nebraska i love alexander payne even though the descendants didn't really do it for me um to me this is um his probably his second best film to me election is like an absolute masterpiece and that movie is so much fun um but nebraska to me is it, it's first of all it's beautiful it, it's so like um, you know, black and white can sometimes be a cheap way to make a movie look good, but um, it's really done right here. Like, it really adds something to this film. It gives it this nice, like, rustic sort of quality. It makes it feel very small and intimate. Um, it's an ultimate road trip film. Like, you know, uh, I don't know. It's, 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 I like this pizza analogy we keep going with. It's really, 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 really good pizza. Uh, black and white pizza, even. Um, and one of the things that I think Alexander Payne can do better than most directors um, is. Um, what he does for his actors. I mean, um, it's funny I say that after I just criticized George Clooney's performance, but he turns Will Forte here, a guy who I think Will Forte is freaking hilarious, um, you know, doing bizarre voices and, and making crazy faces and playing weird characters. But he turns him into one of the most like soulful, relatable human characters I've ever met in something, only rivaled by uh, June Squibb and Bruce Dern, who play his parents in this movie. Um, those are three of the best performances of this year. Um, and I think Bruce Dern especially gives, um, in what has been a really long and amazing career for you know, a man like him, maybe his greatest performance. That's how much uh, I, I think he kills it in this movie. Um, and I agree, it's, it's very criminally underseen. I, mean, I don't know why people haven't seen it, because Alexander Payne is a pretty household name with a lot of big films, and this one just never really got the audience that it maybe deserved. Um, but I love it, and it's definitely my favorite uh, of this year. But we'll look towards uh, the 2015 ceremony. And the Oscar goes to <laughs> Who gave this son of a bitch's green card? Birdman. Looking back at the films of 2014, this will be a really quick one for me. Um, you guys might differ a little bit. Because uh, it is a pretty interesting crop of movies we have this year. I think it's actually a pretty strong group. So our nominees this year were Whiplash, Theory of Everything, Selma, the Imitation Game, Grand Budapest Hotel, Boyhood, American Sniper, and the winner this year, and I think they absolutely got it right, so I'll say it right now, is Birdman. Anyone who knows me, I've probably talked your ear off at one point or another about why I think Birdman is an absolute masterpiece. Um, I think... Alejandro Naritu is um, an incredible director. 
um, who's always trying to do really daring, exciting things. And um, Birdman is to me his his like magnum opus. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear what you guys think. And just please, please, please do not pick American Sniper. <laughs> All right, um, I'll go first. So I will talk. Say my two favorite movies from 2014 are definitely Birdman and Whiplash. That being said, I think Whiplash is phenomenal and is such a, a nerve-wracking movie with amazing performances all around, and the music and how it plays into the, the overall plot is just excellent. But I am going with my trend. Um, that will change. But, uh, but definitely, I agree with Corey. I think Birdman deserved it this year i mean technically speaking the movie's amazing the scenes are incredibly directed the concept of putting a one take into a movie and pulling it off so well um especially whenever they transition to the scenes uh, of dialogue on stage um in in which performances of an actual play are being put on screen the entire film feels very real and uh, I think Alejandro Alejandro and Yuritu just kills this movie. And I agree. I do think it is it's going to be hard for him to top Birdman. So I do think Birdman it was well deserving of of Best Picture. Um, what do you, Sam Samir? I do agree that Birdman Birdman was definitely of one of the top two movies of this year but i actually it's like one of those movies where i think i'm picking a worse movie than birdman but i'm picking a movie that um you know has affected me in a way that only a couple movies in my life have and that is boyhood by richard linklater um speaking of film bro movies this movie is about a just average white suburban boy there's nothing that really it's a movie about nothing but that's kind of the beauty of it to me it's the the a movie about essentially just a white suburban boy growing up um and it's such a daring way to you know film a movie and sometimes it gets kind of stuck in its like look at what we did we filmed at over 15 years and eller what what's his name the kid yeah, he's a horrible actor, especially after like age eight. Because I, I would probably agree with you otherwise if it, if it wasn't for his performance. Yeah, he his acting deteriorates hard after like age ten, which is sad because he's a good child actor, which is the shocking yeah. thing of it all. Um, I but it, with that all said, like Ethan Hawke's in it, like Patricia Arquette's in it, like it is. I, I there's very few movies that have left me as uh. Like I get choked up still talking about it like five or six years later. I I love Boyhood. Def- definitely my favorite movie of the year. Uh, with Birdman yeah, being, what was that, Corey? Special film. I just love picturing because I love Richard Linklater and I respect him a lot as a director. And I love picturing him on the set of like School of Rock, um, like talking to Jack Black about this movie he's filming with this little kid, and like he's not sure what it's gonna be. And then he's on the set of like um, Before Sunset and before midnight and he's like doing the same thing where he's like yeah i'm like i'm talking what well, ethan hawk would have known about it and he and ethan talk ethan hawk kind of talking about this movie i don't know it's like the story behind boyhood and the way it was done is very fascinating probably to me more fascinating than the movie itself i, I agree, agree with that. that final statement 
Yeah, I can I can agree with that, but to me to me I uh I find all of it enthralling. Which takes us to Samir, who has muted himself so he cannot get a, his opinion on anything. Alright. I'm gonna say some big things now. Okay. <laughs> I think I think twenty fourteen for me is the strongest year in terms of the Oscars. And I would say Birdman, um, on my letterbox list and in general after some thinking, I would say I would list that as probably my favorite film of all time. Um, and those are big words, big words. But <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I can emphasize or stress enough about how much of a masterpiece I think this movie is. And I think me being like the stage and theater geek that I am and just being a sucker for really long takes, I'm just absolutely obsessed with this movie. Every single thing about it, um, layers to it, the fact that it all just feels like just one trip and how hard that is to do and how well they pulled it off. The dialogue, the conversations, um, the humor that it goes for. And I, I feel like I could really talk about this movie, honestly, for like three hours. But I'm going to say this and keep it short. Um, there's one scene in that movie that I think, I mean, there's many scenes, but there's one scene that I just love so much that I'm just going to highlight and probably use as a vehicle for my passion for it. Um, oh, well, actually, sorry. There's two scenes. There's two scenes as a sample. Um, the one is where Michael Keaton's character, right? He He's this, he just really wants to act and he has all these passions, but he's not the best at communicating them. And that's such a human thing. Um, but anyways, he picks his career as an actor based on the fact that there's like a like one of his favorite actors or playwrights wrote like a favorable review of him on a wine cocktail napkin or something like that or it was on a napkin and he's trying to piece together his life back and understand his purpose and what he's dedicated his life towards he's talking to one of the characters um and he's explaining to him like he, he wants to make it this big mushy moment where he's like this is what inspired me to become an actor the person that he's talking to looks at the wine cocktail napkin and goes, this is a wine napkin. That guy was drunk as shit. And it cuts to Michael Keaton's <laughs> face just right then in three seconds. But not cuts. Oh, yeah, not cuts, but it pans to Michael Keaton's face. And just, I don't even know how he does it. He gives the perfect expression of his whole life just crumbling in that moment. Um, and then there's another scene where his daughter, Emma Stone, um, is in rehab and they have to write down like every single like i guess i'm forgetting it but every single hundred years that humans have been alive so she writes it down on a toilet paper because that's like this activity that they made them do in rehab and they're just talking about it organically and the next scene she blows her nose with it and i don't even know why but that just stuck out to me as so sharply existential and i just keep thinking about it um but anyways i could talk about this movie forever i think it's a great movie in terms of the other movies, Whiplash, this, this one is in my top 10. I, I really think that this is just such a – because I'm a sucker for, again, like these really tight electric movies that are just driven by characters and dialogue more than anything else. It's just so tense throughout. And I actually think this movie has one of the best endings ever. Um, right then with that really dramatic drum solo and then slowly panning to like a Mona Lisa-esque expression – um from um oh my god i'm forgetting his name someone help me out 
Simmons. Jake. AJ Simmons. Uh, where you're just left deciding. He's the best performance in out of any of these movies, which is J.K. Simmons' performance. I think yeah. we can really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I still have dreams about that not my tempo scene. It's just I think just the way they laid out is just so great. Other movies that I think are super strong that make this my favorite year. Boyhood. Oh my god, I really love this movie. Um, honestly, I didn't even notice the bad acting. Um, I don't even maybe it was just me being in the trend, like the romantic trance I was about this. First of all, I think that's a feat that. Uh, I know it may appear gimmicky to people like that 15 year thing, but I think it's still a pretty impressive thing to do that. Cause I don't know any other movie that's done it. Um, and yeah, sure. It's it, like, it, it is this movie about nothing. It doesn't have a great story to tell. It captures life on screen. And I think it does that well. It ends up kind of falling into the conventional narrative mold, but I don't know. I, I found it just to be at, at times you just have to kind of throw your reason the window and just go with your heart and for me boyhood really moved me um my favorite wes anderson not yeah i i would probably say it's up there for my favorite probably not favorite but the grand budapest hotel i think is a fantastic movie that just really gets what he's the best at like i think this is him operating at height of his powers or near the height of his powers in terms of charm the whimsy um i know we kind of have this debate um like me and me and Corey have gone back and forth on Nicholas winning ref in about um, style over substance and the style is the substance. That's why I'm not a huge fan of Wes Anderson, but I think this movie is just the height of him operating at the best. Um, invitation I'm kind of admit it's actually the only Wes Anderson movie I haven't seen is the Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, you got I still haven't seen it. I don't know. I just like have no motivation. I have no motivation to watch that movie. I mean, I, I think that it is one of the ones that I would say of his that is like, you, you like it's it's a necessary watch for anyone trying to get into Wes Anderson. Um, and then the Imitation Game I also really like. So, anyways, favorite movie. Well, and this year also I mentioned earlier Foxcatcher. This is the year that Foxcatcher came out and got a Best Director nom, um, and several and a bunch of other noms, uh, but not a Best Picture one. So Foxcatcher would have. Um, made this a harder decision for me, I think, but I still probably would have landed on Birdman, which the last thing I'll say on Birdman before we move on to our final Oscars ceremony of this episode is um, I love the decision to center the film around a Raymond Carver story. I don't know how familiar you guys are with Raymond Carver's writing, if you've ever gotten to read it, some of it in class or just for leisure, but he happens, he's one of my favorite um, writers. He's, a, he's a just an incredible American writer. If you ever see the movie Shortcuts, it's built all around his stories, and I highly recommend that if you like his stuff. Um, but the story they, they focus on, the way it resonates with the film, and it just it's it's a really like that whole film is just a breath of fresh air, just something really unique and really special, and um, unlike anything we've discussed in this episode, and that we'll probably ever discuss on this on this podcast, because it really really is um, a really unique film, both in in form and in uh, in, in narrative. But moving on. Um, we're gonna save some of the more recent Oscar ceremonies for our next episode uh, because we do think that like, those probably include, um, you know, stop me if you think I'm wrong, but I think next episode we'll be we'll be discussing some of the most culturally impactful films of the last decade. A lot of those came in the latter half, <clears throat> in the 2016 through 2019. But here we're gonna talk about the 2016 ceremony. That is, of course, about the 2015 films. And the Oscar goes to. 
spotlight. And I hate, I almost feel like we're going out with a whimper here, guys, because I don't feel very passionate about anything on this list, but uh, I'm totally open uh, to being proven wrong. I'll run through the nominees for one last time this episode. We got Room, Revenant, so another Inuritu film. We have The Martian. We have Mad Max Fury Road, Brooklyn, Bridge of Spies, which, by the way, unless I, I, I'll, you guys can stop me if you're going to pick this film, but another just sort of like forgettable Spielberg. You kind of like, I don't know, he just hasn't really been making these memorable films the way he had for the first half of his career. And we have The Big Short, an Adam McKay film. But the winner that year was Spotlight, uh, the film about the uh, Boston Globe's, uh, you know, report on the uh, Catholic Church. So I'm curious to hear what, what you guys have to, have to say about this year. It's an interesting year just in terms of comparing the films, but not one that gets me very excited as a film fan. This is the first of the decade where I f- actually feel like they got it completely right. And... But I also feel like it's it's important to say that there really was not much to choose from. I'm very similar in Corey's frame of thinking. Um, there's a lot of movies that I feel very little about. Um, Spotlight, like when I watched it, like do you ever just watch a movie and go, that is a the most eight out of ten movie I've ever seen. Like it is great, but it, it I don't know how anyone could see it as amazing because it really doesn't. It's really just kind of a it's very plot based. It's not very character based. So it's kind of hard to like actually get super emotionally invested in it. Yeah, there are um, some movies that benefit so greatly from being a true story that like their story is so good. The movie doesn't even have to be. And I think spotlight is one of yeah. them where I don't think that movie does, does itself any favors and any step of the way, but it just happens to be telling a really fascinating, compelling story. Um, and therefore it emerges as a pretty good film in the end. Uh, you would say you think it was the best film of, of this group? Definitely my favorite film of this. I'm a big Adam McKay fan, so I actually do like The Big Short, and it's very a very similar movie to Spotlight. Um, I think it, the editing is is a little shoddy on The Big Short, like most McKay films are. It's a little jumbled um, and a little hard to follow. Um, I just want to say one thing, and I just will never understand the love for Mad Max Fury Road. And like I think, and I, uh, I say I say that looking into the I deep, the, the I say that looking deeply into the soul of Dane Holtz and saying <laughs> Mad Max Fury Road is not that good, and I do not I understand why people like it. In the the opportunity to respond here because I think he and I might be on the same page here. Okay, so just to dabble on Spotlight, I love Spotlight. I definitely think it was deserving of best pitch of best picture, but. Out of all these movies, Mad Max Fury, Fury Road is one of my favorite movies ever. Um, I re- distinctly remember seeing this movie in theaters and walking out just being like, that was one of the best theater experiences I've ever had. Um, it Mad Max Fury Road is probably, other than like Scott Pilgrim, the closest I've seen to an anime movie being put to film. Even though it didn't doesn't have any like anime tropes, just the editing and the the quick zooms and all practical action, just the most breathtaking movie. I I cried at one point because I was so overwhelmed by 
the music and the visuals and the colors and everything that was going on. Um, and the other thing that I really like about this movie is that Mad Max, he's the title character, but I would argue he's not even the main character. It follows Mad Max, but Furiosa very much is the the title character of the movie, in my opinion. And my last thing is actually, as of today, George Miller just announced that they're doing a spinoff um, based around Furiosa with, I, th- I think her name's like Ann Taylor or something. She's a younger actress, but, um, and Chris Hemsworth is in it as well. Um, oh, but yeah, I, I Mad Max Fur- Fury Road takes the cake for me. I, I was hoping it w- would win Best Picture. I'm glad you just told me that, Dan, because I was about to say that there's a lot of controversy that they're, they're, while they are making a sequel to Fury Road, they did not invite back Charlize Theron to be in it. So Fur- Furiosa won't, wouldn't, won't be a character in the next Mad Max film, but I guess they have other plans for the character, so at least that's good to know. Um, I'm with you, though, that if there was ever a year to recognize a big-budget action film, this was the year. I mean, like, we Absolutely. talk all the time about the maybe recognizing um, something a little more mainstream, something more audiences have seen. Mad Max Fury Road was that film. Like, like Dane, you hit it on, the, the colors, the visuals. In that film, it is, you know, um, I've been talking about Birdman doing something very different. Um, Mad Max does something very different, especially for a blockbuster film, just in terms of the, like the, the way it takes advantage of the visual medium uh, and, and the fact that you're in a theater that could blast sound into your ear and music into your ear. I mean, it, it took full advantage of, of all the weapons that film gives you. And I, unlike very many films, and especially unlike every film on this list, like I said, I mean, Spotlight. While I do think it was an enjoyable film, I don't view it as close to deserving of, of Best Picture this year, mostly because I don't think it does anything as a film. It just kind of un, like, you know, un, you know, unleashes a story the way the Wikipedia page for that event would. You know, like it doesn't necessarily do anything for me beyond just filling me in on what happened. The big short, I think, tries a lot but fails the way Adam McKay tends to do. He just throws a lot at the wall and a lot of it sticks and it's really fun. A lot of it kind of doesn't. Um, and then just going through, like some of these other ones here, I think are again similar to this to Spotlight, where they just sort of uh, just kind of like, unfold some events for a couple hours, and then you go home. Mad Max Fury Road is a film in every sense of the word. It really takes advantage of the medium, uh, unlike uh, in a way I haven't seen many films do. Um, and no, it, it's not. It doesn't necessarily have some of that maybe deeper messaging that I often look for in films. And you know, I'll, I can usually find it anywhere. I mean, I guess. There is this thing about a governing body controlling water, like so. There's a, a concept we've seen in movies like Chinatown and even a uh, Rango. You guys remember that movie? I remember being mm-hmm. about like controlling water. That just popped in my head. But uh, there's, there's there's some like economic or uh, you know environmental anxieties in there. In Mad Max, I, mean, it's, I don't know. It does a lot of really cool things. Um, that to me, it is the only like really good movie on this list. It, like nothing on this list excites me that much, but this is the one that is to me really exciting. We're like several hundred decades away from a movie like Mad Max Fury Road ever being the winner of Best Picture, and maybe which that's is a, a big shame. Which, which is maybe a more of an indica- like more of a um, indication of the fall, the failings of the you know the Academy. But dude, this movie had no plot, and like you can say it was pretty to look at. Yeah, like. Like, 
anything's pretty to look at if you look at it long enough or if you're on enough shrooms in Nebraska like but like I don't know dude I don't know this this movie you know what I mean it won the most awards out of any movie nominated it just didn't win best picture which to me tells you that it it they wanted to give it best picture they were just kind of caught in their old sort of Oscar-y ways um, to not feel uncomfortable recognizing a film like that but for all intents and purposes they acknowledge that this was the most impressive film of the year by giving it literally every other award it was nominated for. Yeah, and uh, another thing is, I mean, 100%, it's in, for me, the top 10 action movies ever. It might be the best action movie of all time, just in consideration of what they technically pulled off with all of the stunts and the performance. It, it, yeah, I... Sam, I can see you just wincing in your hair, <laughs> but I Ew. love Fury Road. Samir, what do you think deserve best picture? Where do you land on this Mad Max Fury Road? Yes. I'm going to go ahead here and jump on the shit on Sam Badwagon. Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> with Corey and Dane. Uh, see, the thing is, Mad Max Fury Road is such – a great action film um i would say that i'm i, I might be like an like a notch lower than how passionately you guys feel about this film um but definitely seven like a lot many rungs higher than how much how sam feels about it because i think it's just what they pulled off sam i think you might gain a greater appreciation for this film um kind of watching some of the action sequences being translated into how they appeared on screen and like the innovative techniques that they used for it. As far as the story, I found it to be fine. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't find it to be boring or anything or really anything that is new. They were working with a simplistic plot line. But they, they made it exciting and engaging enough. Um, I will say though, that the first 15 minutes, like the opening sequence of this movie is still probably my favorite uh, stretch of this movie like right before the title card burns through the screen um where like i think if i remember correctly like the car is going off the cliff or something like that and it's mad max Fury road love that i think that might be one of my favorite like opening sequences ever um okay speaking about this year in general if last year was my favorite this year was by far the most disappointing and i'm gonna start by saying um it just everything about it felt like such a letdown like me liking Birdman so much and then me absolutely despising The Revenant the year afterwards where it felt like two and a half hours of Leonardo DiCaprio's nostrils flaring in a woodland like it's Arctic tundra. I, I, I cannot tell you how much like I, I like the bear scene I guess but I don't know like I didn't think that somebody that I held up to that level of respect in Alejandro uh, Gonzalez Inyatiru, um would would backstab me like that but i don't know like i obviously i know a, a lot of people really enjoyed the film so um in terms of the big short i truly cannot phrase this better than what Corey said in terms of with adam mckay it's throwing a lot of stuff on the wall and there's some really great stuff that sticks um i know with vice i felt like he completely fumbled the bag and more shit stick to the wall than good stuff um but with this this movie i think more fun stuff does end up sticking to the walls so i think it's a good movie it's a fun movie i definitely agree it's like or best out of his new like politically yeah sense uh sensitive films. step brothers is probably his actual yeah 
in, Secession in is of definitely the, the best thing he's ever made. But oh, yeah. It might be the best well, movie. In, in terms of the other movies, I am just so completely not about it. I'm... I, I really don't like The Martian. I don't know about you guys. I just found no charm in it whatsoever. And I just hated how much people liked it. Me being the annoying piece of shit I am. I just, I hated people expressing how much they liked this movie. Um, yeah, because I a lot of love for being about a dude who just like grows plants on Mars. Like it's, exactly. so, it's so boring. I don't know how it was such a blockbuster. It was I, think so it, boring. I think it rode off the wave of Interstellar. Yeah, it definitely I, I, did. Yeah, I, I think so too because I I really can't see many redeeming qualities about this movie. Um, but yeah, I think this is just a disappointing year in general. Um, Mad Max Fury Road I think deserves the best picture for how innovative it was. And as Corey and Dane put it, if there was a year to recognize an action movie, this one would be it because this is this is if not the best, um, very close to the best action movie ever made. Um, so. Well, you heard it here first. Uh, we are right. Sam is wrong. Sam does not know anything about the Oscars. Apparently, uh, <laughs> not the Oscar ceremony that took place in 2016, the 88th Academy Awards. Sam has no idea what he's talking about. Talk about uh, that. Well, our next episode, we're going to be talking about the 89th ceremony through to the 92nd. Uh, there's some really exciting debates that we'll get into there. Surprisingly, we finished off here with a pretty good debate, I'd say. Maybe our most heated debate yet on of all movies, Mad Max Fury Road, one that I didn't even know I was this passionate about until I decided I could disagree with Sam about it. Uh, <laughs> but otherwise, uh, any final thoughts on our, on our Oscar debate here? It's funny because we're like, does anyone give a shit about the Oscars? And and I'm gonna be honest, like most Oscar ceremonies are an absolute fucking drag to get through, and I it's only fun to watch if you're watching with other people who are really into movies. Like watching them, I I I don't get why anyone who casually watches, I can could just casually watch the Oscars unless you're like really invested in the movies that are getting discussed. But I do disagree with one final point that's like the Oscars, for how much we hate them, are the barometer on the cinematic you know universe until further notice, and that's just kind of how it is. Um, you'll see movies like. You're, you are right in that they they determine trends of what gets made and what doesn't. Um, yeah, I agree that I don't want to love them. And, um, you know, like Samira mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, watching them is one of my worst habits. But uh, for the foreseeable future, they are all we have to, to sort of recognize uh, our movies. And, and so I'm with you there. I think it's a it's a uh, it's a bittersweet truth to accept the Oscars in that way. I mean, like you also, I think you kind of alluded to this too. We just had this epic debate about the Oscars for what is it almost probably almost two hours now, and we didn't even get through the last decade. So um, clearly, we're into them a little more than we'd like to admit. Uh, and and yeah, I mean, the Oscars are um, ripe for conversation, whether they have meaning or not. But for the Don't Hate Us podcast, I am Corey. Alongside me is Samir, Dane, and Sam. Uh, tune in next time to hear us talk about the rest of the Oscar ceremonies for this decade. See you later, guys.